Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. 40 under 40. Every year, Connecticut Magazine highlights the people from our state who are making a big impact where they live. Today, we talk to three of them. Coming up, we hear from opera singer and Hartford resident Miles Wilson-Tolliver, who began performing around the world at age nine. We also check in with Shelby Davis, who's a school counselor and author in Waterbury and leads City Youth Theater. Who are the change makers and trailblazers where you live? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us first is Omaris Vasquez. She lives in Watertown and is an architect at Svigals Plus Partners. She's also co-founding architect for Connecticut's chapter of the National Organization of Minority Architects. Omaris, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you. And our listeners, you can read about the latest 40 under 40 class at ConnecticutMag.com, which is a partner with Connecticut Public. Now, Maris, first off, congratulations to you. And tell us a little bit about your path to becoming an architect. When did you decide this was your calling? Thank you so much. Um, For me, it was something that wasn't in the forefront as a, a young girl growing up in lower Manhattan. You know, growing up um, disadvantaged and underprivileged uh, and low income, there wasn't really that much exposure in regards to architecture, engineering, or construction where, where I resided and where I went to school. And it started when I was about eight, and my parents, who are immigrants from the Dominican Republic, were looking to construct a house out there. You know, the exchange rate is really inexpensive to do that, especially with the income that they had here. And he brought home a foam core board model. And that's where immediately my interest was piqued. And I started to ask questions and and what is this and what do architects do? And so tell us about uh, from that moment, you know, how you uh, went on to become an architect and, and how you ended up here in Connecticut. Sure. Uh, I'll try to make the story concise. Um, so from that point, I just started to explore more and more and kind of learn about what architects do and, and who they are and how they impact society. And I was resilient and I was stubborn and I wouldn't take no for an answer. And um, I ended up going to a business high school in Manhattan, um, mostly for for commuting safety reasons rather than an art high school. And when it came time to speak to a college counselor and he asked what I wanted to be, and I said, I'm going to be an architect. And he asked, what are you doing in this school? (laughs) 
So um, he was the one that really guided me in terms of what are the right schools, you know, educating me on what types of uh, accredited universities I could apply to and introduced me to a weekend uh, course at the Fashion Institute of Technology where I took an interior design course when I was a junior in high school. Hmm. And then, yeah, so from there, I attended Pratt Institute in Brooklyn, New York. Um, You know, we were all New York City natives and that's when my parents moved to Waterbury uh, right about when I was graduating high school and, you know, talking about disadvantaged communities, they can't afford housing or single family home in, in New York State, New York Jersey. So they ended up moving to Waterbury where houses were much more affordable and they can realize that American dream. When we talk about architecture and talking to an architect, we think about maybe the technical. So as you mentioned, the engineering and the construction. But can you talk more about uh, the art uh, that is included when we think about how architects are designing buildings and how you think about the projects that you work on, Omeris? Absolutely. Yeah, I think you, you kind of hit the nail on the head there. When people think of architects, they only think about the drawings, right? And and the construction portion of it, but there's far more that goes into the design of a building and a space beyond just the technical. Uh, And it starts with a conversation and it starts with getting to know and understanding the client and the users of that building, but also the community around it. And that's where architecture you know, used for public spaces or for residential, it, it needs to respond to that environment, to that community, what is their value and importance to them. And, and part of that is integration of color, of light, of nature, and of art. Art, you know, used in creative and innovative ways, whether it's a sculpture or whether it's a relief on a building or even just the massing and the volume of the building that can create visual interest. It's really important to the psyche. Let's talk about some of the projects that you've worked on, including the Ronald McDonald House in New Haven, what you just described about how, uh, when you're thinking about design, how it needs to fit and how you bring the outside in. Can you describe this place for our listeners and then your role in this project? Of course, that was one of uh, my highlight projects because it just had such a personal connection for me. Um, the wonderful thing about working on a project like that is is all that community integration and collaboration and just the message that Ronald McDonald House gives and how they support not just their local community, but even third world countries, you know, around the world, housing families to keep them close to their children who are receiving critical care in the hospital nearby. You know, just providing that home away from home and the message was super impactful and influenced how we approached the design of that building. And it's, you know, down to the color and the nature integration. the scale of the building too, and, and as you mentioned, trying to get it and, and you know aiming to have it fit within the fabric of that neighborhood so that it doesn't 
uh, seem overpowering, but kind of is brought down to a residential scale. And integrating as much of that natural light in there, especially for a building like that, where it's healing families, not in the medical sense, but in the in the kind of the psychological sense and in your well-being, opening up and providing as many windows to bring in some of that natural daylight and trying to make that visual connection between inside and outside. And where we can't integrate biophilic design, and in this case, you know, uh, plants and plantscape inside, we try to draw that feeling and that sense in utilizing techniques like large open windows or patterns on the floor that emulate rivers or rolling hills and the colors are more natural and subdued. So there's a kind of a lot of, it's just some examples of how we can merge architecture, art and uh, nature. You know, during the pandemic, so many of us now realize the the amount of time we spend in a space, the way uh, it's, it makes us feel is important. So when we think about the Ronald McDonald House and serving families whose children may be getting care at the nearby Children's Hospital in New, ha- in New Haven, uh, helping them feel comfortable. Is there a sense of whimsy despite the stress that they may be under um, as they spend time in this building? Yes, exactly. Um, As I mentioned before, you know, not just the natural light and nature, but color. And there is that level of whimsy so that, again, it it helps to elevate your your mood a little bit as you're progressing and processing into the building. And, And if you've kind of looked at some of the images or passed by, to the Ronald McDonald House, you would also notice that it almost creates like a, a courtyard in the center. And the idea there is to give a sense of open arms and welcoming and almost like an embrace as one enters into the courtyard. It also balances acoustics and sound so that as you step away and that building steps away from the front of the street, those walls become a shelter from sound and you're walking through this curving and winding path. Um, You're welcomed by um, energetic and playful figures on the facade of the buildings to remind you again of the positivity of family and and how that, that power heals. Again, you're hearing Omeris Vasquez here on Where We Live. She's an architect and associate at Svigels Plus Partners, one of Connecticut Magazine's 40 Under 40 honorees this year. Omeris, can we talk about another project that you worked on? And, and that was the new Sandy Hook School and the conversations that you and your colleagues had with the local community to inform that design for those children and the educators there. Of course. Um, so as you know, I wanted to also uh, state and understand that there's not just one designer and no one of us can take the entire credit of a design of a building. And that particular project, there were so many stakeholders involved and it wasn't a design by Spiegel's, but rather a design by the community. And that's where we take a lot of our initiative and direction is from 
talking to the local community and not just the teachers and the parents that are going to be using that school and the children, but also uh, maintenance personnel, neighbors, you know, city stakeholders, and collecting their ideas, their values, their what's important to them and their input other than the safety, right, of, of our children and of the school. But, you know, we all play a cog in this role, even from the architect and engineer side, it takes a village, much like raising children to create a building. From the designers to the technical aspect and the drawers, the engineers, the contractors, the community. And, and with that, we we try to integrate a lot of the natural elements that's evident in Newtown itself from the peaks and spires of the uh, building in the town and, and the rolling hills and uh, natural uh, ambiance that the town embodies. How did you feel being part of that team, helping design this very important space for the community? It, just like Ronald McDonald House and, and a lot of the projects that we do, it's, it's very validating and fulfilling because that's, for me and many of us, one of the reasons why we become architects. We want to be the ones that can impact our society in a positive way. Uh, we inhabit spaces, you know, 70% or more of our day, whether it's your home or whether it's a public building. And how you feel in that space really affects your overall well-being. It can improve or discourage creativity, right? Depending on that space, uh, a positive space will encourage innovation and creativity and well-being. And I appreciate all aspects of architecture, design, and technical, and I felt really fulfilled and honored to work on such a valuable project. Well, Maris, I mentioned that you're also co-founder of the Connecticut chapter of the National Organization of Minority Architects, also known as NOMACT. Tell us about you know, why this was so important to you and you know what the organization plans on doing to connect uh, with other minority architects in our state. Of course. So the National Organization of Minority Architects has uh, actually been around for 50 years and there's many state chapters. However, Connecticut has never had a chapter before. And as I mentioned, I grew up in New York City and New York City is very, very diverse. And upon moving to Connecticut, I never really noticed the loneliness that would come from being a minority uh, woman, especially in a field that is predominantly a white male industry. And although I don't see in color, I always say I, I see and, and view everyone as equals. I did sense uh, this uh, syndrome called the, the lonely only in a lot of the places that I've worked at. And I started to search. And at that time, I was a recent college graduate and I was looking for others like me to help guide and mentor and uh, elevate my career. But there really weren't any minority organizations at the time. 
and we're we're talking 15 or so years ago so it's it was a while ago and talking about kind of one of the importances of having organizations like this it took me a long time to get my actual architect's license because of a lot of the barriers that I had faced personally as a, as a minority, as a first-generation American, uh, as a first-time college graduate. And once I finally got my licensure, I started to think about what can I do with my time and what can I do with my, with my knowledge and my experience and it happened to be the outcome of being at the right place at the right time and the unfortunate uh, outcome of or results of recent events um, surrounding Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. It just it was just the right time. And the importance of, of mentoring, uh, connecting with young people, because as you said, uh, you know, you were a child uh, when your fathers uh, um, brought home the foam, thinking about what they could build back in the Dominican Republic. Uh, but I'm wondering like, how you have been, how people have responded to you as a minority woman architect and, and how you'll bring that into mentoring uh, other uh, young people of color. So I've had the fortune of not feeling, I guess, isolated or not included. However, it, it still felt that as a, a minority woman, I had to work 10 times harder than my peers. And when we started this organization or when I joined it and enthusiastically volunteered to, to be a part of it, I, I felt there was a need. I felt that I, I didn't, I had a lot of mentors in my career that really did help shape and evolve my, my career and my progression. Um, but there's still something that is missing in terms of relatability in regards to overcoming some challenges as a woman in a man's field or as a, a minority designer. And I hope to be, and, and I've gotten this advice before, is be the mentor you wish you had. Mm -hmm. And that's where we want as an organization to be not just leaders and bring awareness to the inequalities of representation, but to help elevate those that are below us, to mentor them and to provide exposure for other children who, like in my situation, would have never fathomed that, wow, I can be that. I can be an engineer. I can be an architect. I can be a construction manager because they could never envision that for themselves. Mm. I understand NOMAC started a scholarship fund to help uh, minority high school students who are interested in pursuing a career in architecture. Uh, so it's great to hear about some of these initiatives uh, through this organization that you helped co-found. Uh, Omaris Vasquez, it was a pleasure to hear from you and learn about your work and your impact in the community. Again, Omaris is one of Connecticut Magazine's 40 Under 40. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. 
You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Uh, this note, Connecticut Public's Vanessa Della Torre is also on this year's Connecticut Mag's 40 Under 40 list. Vanessa is the executive editor of the New England News Collaborative, a group of nine regional public media stations whose stories you hear and read at ctpublic.org. Now, after the break, we talk to another 40 Under 40 honoree, Waterbury resident, Shelby Davis. Who are the change makers and trailblazers where you live? You can join us too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're checking in with some of the honorees in Connecticut Magazine's latest 40 Under 40. My next guest is a youth theater company founder and counselor at Crosby High School in Waterbury. He's also an author whose books also aim to help others, including Davis's Everything My Parents Taught Me in Six Steps, Life's Guide. Shelby joins us now on the phone. Welcome to the show, Shelby. Thank you for having me. Good morning. And congratulations for being included in this year's 40 Under 40. How did you feel when you, when you uh, learned of this, uh, this list and that you're on it? Uh, excited. I was surprised and I was confused. <laughs> I was pretty much saying, did they have the right person? But I was very honored. Very honored. So you do a lot, but I wanted to start talking with you about your role in the Waterbury schools um, as a counselor. And you're also a Waterbury native, I believe. So tell me about the work that you're doing, the kids that you're connecting with. So right now I work in a high school and my job is to help students um, be in school. I'm the attendance counselor and get them active and engaged in their work and graduated. That's the end goal. We want our students to be successful. We want them to be here every day, and I help them do that each and every day by setting goals, working with them, whatever they have going on at home, outside of school, and making sure that they, uh, they have everything they need to be successful in school, and we get them graduated. We know being a kid is hard, and then add the pandemic uh, to uh, you know yes. what it's like in the last couple of years. And so I wonder if you can talk more about some of the, the students that you're connecting with and what you're hearing from them about the, the struggles they may be facing and how you and your colleagues are working to keep them engaged uh, despite right. some of the challenges. 
it's definitely been very different, especially with um, virtual learning being uh, added to our, our system last couple of years um, and just keeping them engaged, keeping them motivated. Um, you know, they had a lot of disappointment with events being canceled and the sports and the, the arts and everything being canceled and just trying to keep them encouraged, keep them motivated, keep them going to uh, graduate, to be successful, to get their grades up and not lose the motivation to be in school. You mentioned you're, you're the attendance counselor. And so when we hear that, you know, when some children have not been engaged and haven't been coming to school regularly with the challenge also of signing on to virtual learning when that was happening, you know, can you talk more about you know, how you were able to reach some of those kids and some of what they have to deal with at home? Yep. Actually, during the pandemic, um, when kids were doing virtual learning, I was actually going to their houses, knocking on the door, and having conversations with them at their doorsteps, at their windows, from, a, from afar, um, a lot of virtual meetings and seeing whatever they need, um, providing them that insight, that motivational talk, um, just to hear them out. Sometimes they just want to, someone to talk to about what they're experiencing and what they're feeling. So I was doing a lot of home visits um, in the community to let us know that we are here, we're here to help you, um, we're here to motivate you and inspire you to, to be successful. As you know, getting kids engaged sometimes is also helping them figure out what they're passionate about. And Absolutely. I understand that you're the executive director of City Youth Theater in Waterbury. And so tell us about that uh, outlet and how you found theater. Um, so I do a lot of theater in the community. I've always had a, a passion for theater. And I used to direct high school plays. And um, so about a couple years ago, I decided that I want to continue this passion and my love for theater and inspire others and, and bring it to the community. So I started a free program here in Waterbury, um, and it's a theater program. It's open to anyone who wants to learn about um, backstage, who wants to learn about acting skills, who want to perform, who want to sing. And it's free, and we do a couple shows a year, and we have auditions, and we, we encourage everyone to come down. You mentioned it's free, so how do you keep it going? And then when we think about the pandemic, how that, yeah. <laughs> you know, how you had so to I adapt opened, to that. So when I opened in 2019, me and a group of um, some youth volunteers who planned and we got ready to start and we began our first production rehearsals of Clue. We were doing a production of Clue and the pandemic hit. And I said, oh, don't worry, we'll be back in a week. So I'll go home. And then the year went by and we still were closed. Um, so we do a lot of fundraising. We have actually a fundraiser this evening. Um, so we do all fundraising. Ticket sales is how we um, pay for our productions and our staff that I have to hire to teach our, our youth. I have a music director. I have a choreographer. And I bring in these professionals so that the kids are able to learn from professional people in the field. Mm. You know, I was a theater kid, too. I found some old pictures of me in some junior <laughs> high productions. And it's funny to look back, but I also remember, you know, that feeling when you find that community, that place of people that uh, you feel uh, included and you're able to be confident about um, you know, singing and dancing, being on stage, or even, as you mentioned, working off stage, supporting these productions. And I, want, I was just curious about when you were a theater kid, um, you know, how you gravitated to that how it made you feel actually it's funny because i was in eighth grade and they needed another male to be in the play and the teacher approached me and she asked me and i said no way i do not want to i don't do theater i'm not getting on the stage she kept insisting she said get on stage give it a try and ever, i was hooked ever since then i've been doing plays ever since then and um it's such a, such a passion and i see the passion in some of my cast 
now in my production, and I call them my family. And I, and I enjoy that they are able to express themselves, and then there's this place that they can go and just just express themselves. Mm. Again, you're hearing Shelby Davis here on Where We Live. He's one of the 40 under 40 honorees in Connecticut MAG. This year, he's a counselor at Crosby High School in Waterbury, executive director of City Youth Theater. And did I mention that Shelby is also an author? So Shelby, tell me about your books. I wanted to start with Everything My Parents Taught Me in Six Steps, Life's Guide. It sounds like you had a, a good support network growing up. Yeah, I have wonderful parents who still inspire me each and every day. And I wanted to, and they taught me a lot of values. And I wanted to share some of the values that I can share with my students um, to inspire them, to motivate them. And I, I created this small read, 52 pages, that people can just pick up and read in a week. And it has a lot of different quotes. It has some um, goals, talks about goal setting, um, doing the things that you love in life, traveling, if you're able to, and just, and just, going out there, reaching for your goals, and staying motivated. And it's okay that if the, the road takes a left turn, you're able to go right again. So don't not to worry. Mm. Has that happened to you? And you know, how did you persevere, Shelby, to the point yeah, where I, that you feel like you want to help others uh, with this guide as well? I think that we always have to remember that it's, it's okay if you set a goal and you don't get there in, in three weeks as you planned, that it's important just to stay motivated. It's just important to keep looking at that light at the end of the tunnel. And that's basically pretty much the concept of my book that you have to just keep going. You have to get up out of your bed. You have to come to school. You have to keep on going. Mm -hmm. uh, Shelby, uh, when we think about, um, writing and i'm wondering if you can talk about um, how you incorporate writing even in like your daily life uh, why it's an important outlet for you right i wouldn't say i'm, I'm a writer so to speak mm. um you know and, and when i was doing my first book i did a lot of research with other books because i'm not the best writer and i used some of my uh, my colleagues that were writers for a little assistance with it um so it was, it was a little challenging and i had to remember that you know i have a goal here i want to have something that I want to pass on to my students. Um, each year I do give some of my books out to my graduating seniors as something they could take with them to college or whatever other goals they have in mind to continue to be inspired. And you have another book that, that came out recently, Meet Wyatt Brown. Tell us about it. Yeah, so Wyatt Brown is uh, about a young boy. He's in elementary school. He's actually based on one of my good friends' stepchild. Um, and he, in his book, there are characters that resemble people in my real life. Um, I actually lost two friends a couple of years ago. So there are two characters in the book based on my friends that passed away. And it, it talks about why in his first adventure, he doesn't want to go to school. So we talk about the importance of going to school and what are the benefits of going to school. And it's an easy read for young children. Um, so they were my next market that I wanted to inspire and it's a 22 pages, fully color, fully illustrated book. And it's very engaging. There's questions in there. So um, whoever's reading with the kids, they can have a talk back session about what happened in the book, what the moral of the story was. And it's very, very fun and engaging. Mm -hmm. And so your audience, uh, who you're writing for, are your students. And I'm curious if you can talk more about how they respond to your books or even the fact that you took it upon yourself to talk about or include loss uh, 
as we journey on and how students um, have to learn sometimes to adapt to um, some of these uh, these traumas that we face and, and to keep uh, engaged and moving forward, Shelby? My students are very receptive. Um, they're very grateful, most of them, that I <laughs> are able to share this information with them and um, give them some insight on life and real life and keep them inspired, keep them motivated. That's really my goal. That's really my goal. Every day I set foot into my theater, um, into the school, when I write my books, is that I don't want people to give up. I want people to overcome their struggles um, and to really really get their successes in life and that it's okay to be set back. Um, Our life is, is not a straight, narrow road. We have some turns in it and that you will get there if you keep striving for it, you will get there. If it takes two years, if it takes three months, you will get there. You mentioned that your parents uh, were definitely uh, your role models and, and inspired you, but I wonder if you can talk about some other people uh, throughout your life, Shelby, that have helped you. We heard Amaris talking about a school counselor as well um, that helped her on her path to becoming an architect. What about you? Uh, I definitely would say uh, my aunt, She's a person who I can talk to. Um, definitely some of my friends, they're very supportive. Anytime I have events or anything that's going on, they're usually there and very supportive. I can share with them anything that I'm working on, and they're able to give me back insight and keep me motivated and support my projects and my vision. And what's next for you? Are you also uh, working on uh, a play or a future production um, beyond the City Youth Theater? Yes, I wanted to work to continue to grow my youth theater organization. Um, When we had our first set of auditions last year, we had 10 people audition for our production. When we had this past audition, we had 40 people audition for the production. So uh, my hope is to continue to grow it. Um, continue to grow our fundraising so that we could do the programming. I would like to do classes and workshops and bringing professionals to work with our cast and our youth, our family, our theater family, um, to continue that as well. I mentioned that you're a Waterbury native. Anything our listeners, a statewide audience, should know about Waterbury? Um, it's It's got its great stuff in here. You know, people sometimes give Waterbury a great uh, not a great name, but we have places like the Palace Theater, and we're doing various community activities. We have the Mattatuck Museum, who we have worked with. So we do have some great hidden gems here. So come on down. Well, Shelby Davis, it was a pleasure to get to know you and about some of the work that you're doing. Again, Shelby is a counselor at Crosby High School in Waterbury. He's an author, executive director of City Youth Theater. And uh, it's been a pleasure to speak with you, one of the honorees of Connecticut Magazine's 40 Under 40. Shelby, thank you. Thank you very much. Have a great day. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. Coming up next, we talk to opera singer Miles Wilson-Tolliver. Stay with us.
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're talking to some of this year's honorees in Connecticut Magazine's 40 Under 40. My next guest is an opera singer and voice teacher from Hartford. Here's Miles Wilson-Tolliver. Eugene is free. He's walking through the gates. I can breathe. I can see God, all the colors dancing in my soul. I can taste. I can Never thought I'd reach the end of the night. I can stretch. I can smile. Might even find me a little love. I can laugh. I can can run. And give thanks and praise to God above. This must heard Miles singing in the Cincinnati opera production of Blind Injustice. In the summer of 2019, he played Eugene Johnson based on the real-life man who was wrongly convicted and later exonerated. Miles Wilson-Tolliver joins us now on the phone. Welcome to the show. Hi, Lucy. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. What, what a lovely voice. I have to ask, when did you realize you could sing? You know, I didn't get the opportunity to realize that because uh, by the time I turned about, you know, two years old or so, my mother had me singing already pretty much full. I was full throttle in the church singing up there uh, in the choir and such. So, yeah, I, I never got the chance to realize. But, but um, yeah. It's Your been a, mama uh, knew. A mama mom. knew that you had talent. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> So, Miles, I mentioned you're an opera singer, you're a voice teacher in Hartford. You founded Voices of Hartford. This is a group of advanced singers in Hartford who, quote, build community through music. So let's start there. Tell me about this group and your role in it. Sure. So first off, you know, when we got, I got back to Hartford, uh, I would say about, a couple of years ago, but prior to that, I had been in Hartford all my life. Um, I was raised, you know, over over on Cape Inch Street, so right off of Main Street. I am through and through a Hartford native, Hartford kid, um, and that's all I ever re- really will be. <laughs> um, and so uh, when, we, when I got back to Hartford maybe a couple of years ago, because uh, I had been uh, singing and performing, when I got back, I was meeting with some of the community leaders and uh, I was working alongside of uh, Councilwoman Shirley Surgeon and uh, Luz Holmes, the president of the Upper Albany NRZ. And I was working with these uh, these folks and we were meeting, I don't know if you remember, uh, around this time, we started back in May, 2020. Mm-hmm. This was right, I guess, when we had just 
kind of started to see the light coming out of, of course, we had no idea that the, uh, the pandemic would peak again, right? But, <laughs> but we, we had started to kind of see the light and there was a way for folks to start to slowly gather. Um, and so at this moment, I was uh, working with the community leaders and we were discussing some of the issues that we were having in the community um, and just ways on how we would address some of our issues. And, um, and so one of the things that came up was productive programming for young people, right? Um, productive programming for young people as we started to come into the month of June, which is when Voices of Hartford started, we wanted to provide a safe space uh, for young people to be to have some sort of productive programming over the summer, and that's kind of really how Voices of Harford just started. It, it started out of a need, uh, a want to meet the need of the Upper Albany, more specifically the Upper Albany North Hartford area, and um, and so I was meeting with the the community leaders, and then I met uh, the executive director Tom Cook. Uh, the executive director of Voice, uh, Voce. And uh, Voce is a choir here in Hartford that's been a longstanding, uh, really well-known choir here in uh, New England, uh, southern New England. And so I, I got to talking with Tom, and he wanted to, uh, you know, he was interested in serving as well. He had this sim- a similar call that I had. And so it, it just it just worked out to where I was working with the community, I was working with a longstanding choir, and together we, we formed uh, Voices of Hartford, which was to provide a safe space for, you know, those young Hartford residents to have some productive programming throughout the summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and little did we know that it would become, you know, this amazing performance group that we had no idea. Uh, and it, it just, but it but the intentions, our intentions were to provide some opportunity in artistic programming. Now, you studied at Carnegie Mellon University, and during that time, I understand you worked on social justice operatic pieces. And so given your background and you know the, the mission of Voices of Hartford as a place to engage, and as you mentioned, provide a space uh, for um, uh, Hartford residents to come together, Tell us more about, it's not just the singing, uh, what else that you're doing that helps these members engage uh, with what's going on in their lives, but also the people that are seeing them perform? Yeah, so, it's a, yeah, it's, it's actually made quite amazing what we've been able to do uh, when we focus less on the performance and a little more on the process and um, how we can best help uh, some of the singers in our group. So, for instance, um, you know, one of the things that we offer, we talk about opportunity and what it means to, what opportunity really means for our singers in our community. Um, and one of those things, uh, you know, it goes beyond the open invite. Our opportunity that we provide for some of these young Hartford residents goes beyond just an open invite. Our programming our musical programming has to be um, relevant, right? And, and engaging to a younger audience. Uh, and so, you know, I am consistently um, moving and um, bending, uh, you know, what I know, not conforming what I know or changing what I know to, um, to, to reach them, but just packaging it a little differently, right? 
um, packaging it a little differently to engage young people. So our programming, our artistic programming, and you, you mentioned that I am, an, I am an opera singer, you know, so I'm opera all day, every day. And uh, to me, it's kind of like the Olympics of, of singing, right? And, and so uh, we train very hard and we challenge, we challenge ourselves. And we do challenge the, the young gentleman in Voices of Hartford. But what we also do is um, we make sure that um, our programming is relevant to them, that the music uh, reaches their community and celebrates who we are. So, for instance, uh, we, we have, I mean, we sing everything from Negro spirituals to uh, operas that are, are 21st century opera, English operas. Uh, that deal with social justice, as, as we talked about, issues of social justice. And um, we also work on jazz and, and Broadway tunes. But whatever it may be, again, our, our, our intention is to provide them some great educational musical programming, give them an opportunity, make this, this music something that they can be excited about and uh, and share with their peers. Um, the other thing we also offer is payment. And this was kind of radical, um, but we started paying young people for their time, uh, even uh, to come in and learn and perform this music. Um, I think that it's really great to show them that their time matters and, and that their time is valuable. And for them to start to get into the practice of valuing their own time. And so it sets good principles. You know, it, it also gives us a chance to be like, okay, you know, paid professionals don't act that way. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, all in all, um, it's a great, it's a great experience. We also feed them every, and that, that might be more of a, a, need, a need of mine, <laughs> but uh, every, every rehearsal is catered. Um, and we, we cater from a partner that we have, Lily's uh, Catering. Um, and so, yeah, we, we really take care of these singers, these athletes, these musical athletes, as, as one might think of an opera singer. Um, mm. and, and, and it's a really great opportunity, like I said, one that hasn't necessarily been offered uh, to my community. And I understand for people who are interested in auditioning for Voices of Hartford, we've got information on our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live, a way to connect with Miles Wilson Tolliver, my guest today, one of the 40 under 40 uh, honorees from Connecticut Magazine. You have a, a great career, and I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about your solo career. What's next for you, Miles? Yes. So, um Mike, so I have a great yet. Let, let, thank you very much. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, I will be singing uh, in Cincinnati. And uh, oh goodness, now you're getting my dates out, and I don't have my dates. But in October, <laughs> I will be singing in uh, Cincinnati. I've also just partnered uh, or working through a partnership with Carnegie Mellon, uh, in which I'll be giving some vocal instruction and some. Um, some instruction through one of uh, I started a foundation actually miles and friends mentorship program and this program uh, helps young black artists through their uh, entrepreneurship journey and and how they're they're learning to 
promote themselves and uh, um, kind of get their voice out there and, and be heard. And so that that entails, you know, social media consulting and copyright and distribution uh, consulting. And they get one-on-one -on -one consultations with some leading professionals in the industry. Um, and so I'll be doing that alongside Carnegie Mellon. Um, I also am voice teaching at uh, Harvard University. Uh, and so I work with the Holden uh, Voice Program. I have some wonderful students there. Uh, I am putting together a concert series um, with uh, Wayne Dixon, and that is just in, in the works. So I don't really have any dates uh, for that as of right now. I do know that Voices of Hartford, you did mention auditions, so folks should definitely um, reach out to me because Voices of Hartford does have a concert coming up on March 13. Um, and we are engaging in some really exciting partnerships. Uh, we're engaging with Kinsella um, to work with their uh, music director uh, and as well as uh, Greater Hartford Academy of the Arts. So folks, if you're really interested in singing with a, with a group, you know, my time has, I love singing and a lot of my time, my singing now is uh, dedicated to the Upper Albany and North Hartford residents. And so I use my voice before it was about performing around the world. And I, and I loved it. And I loved premiering some, some amazing world premieres like Blind Injustice um, by Scott Davenport Richards, which was a world premiere I did in Cincinnati and another world premiere I did in Pittsburgh, uh, Gathering of Sons. And I loved premiering these wonderful pieces. Um, but my voice has turned into a mode of expression. And now I use my voice to make a difference. That's my, my, my chief task. Uh, and so I find myself more and more singing here in Hartford. I do get up to Boston a bit and sing with uh, Dr. Anthony Tressa King, who is a conductor that I work with frequently. Uh, however, yeah, my, now, you know, Lucy, I'm utilizing my voice to make a difference in the community. Mm. And uh, it, that is what's been the most fulfilling. Well, we really appreciate you spending some of your time with us. You've got a lot on your plate, Miles, but we appreciate hearing about uh, the work that you're doing. And what a voice. Thank you so much for coming on today, and congratulations to you. Thank you for having me. That's Miles Wilson-Tolliver, an opera singer and voice teacher who helped co-found Voices of Hartford, a group of singers in Hartford's North End. He's also a community activist behind the Miles and Friends Mentorship Program. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, today's show produced by Katie Pellico.